Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I am Scott Phillips from the Motley Fool. He is Andrew Page from the private online investment club known to friends and family as strawman.com. That gets the uh, politeness out of the way. Andrew Page, how are you, mate? Very good. Two, two episodes running, where you've remembered. Becoming a, becoming a trend, isn't it? Hey, uh, listeners, if you're it. enjoying the fact that I've stopped making bad jokes, feel free to let me know. If you also missed the bad jokes, tell us that too, because, uh, you know, I've had some feedback, but maybe maybe there's different <laughs> feedback from different people. So let's, uh, let's not assume. Let's not assume. I'm not ruling out the chance that we may revert to type next week. So yeah, you'll have to optimist. stand by. You'll have to keep <laughs> listening. We'll see how we go. Mate, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Very About good. as good as I was when we spoke 10 minutes ago. <laughs> oh, pulling back the curtain in the theatre of the mind. Terrible. Yes, it was only. <laughs> there we are recording on Thursday, the 23rd of February. So as I say regularly, if anything horrible's happened in the meantime, sorry, we didn't know. Uh, you are more informed right now than we are. Well, I mean, we know, but we're not here. And Anyway, let's not go there. Uh, virtual <laughs> reality is not yet with... Maybe one day, mate, podcasts have little avatars of you and I talking, like put them on the desk and see us chatting or something. In the That'd metaverse. Be, yeah, in the metaverse. potentially, yeah. yeah. Probably not a... <laughs> Net positive, though, to be fair. <laughs> I've always been talking ahead for radio. It's probably it's probably right. I think so. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll keep it. Maybe we'll keep it purely audio. We'll see how how things pan out, uh, mate. I did a bit of a tease on Friday afternoon. I said I would ask you to solve the problem of superannuation. Now we don't normally, occasionally we do let, let topics drag across from the main podcast or the regular Friday podcast to this one, but I thought it's a bit of a Q and A type question. It's a bit of a, um, a mailbag of sorts. This question comes from Scott. P um, from something called The Motley Fool. Uh, mate, this Love the show, guys. Great show, particularly Scott. He's so well-informed <laughs> and articulate. Right. Love anyway, the show. To my question. Worth more money. Yeah, <laughs> tell, tell your boss you're worth more. Uh, love Scott. Huh? What? That's weird. Anyway, um, mate, superannuation, lots and lots of conversation now. Again, I'll, I'll just, again, re-timestamp this because God knows what happens in the meantime. There was talk about capping super at $5 million. Now it's $3 million, uh, if you believe what was in the papers on Thursday morning, certainly in the AFR, uh, led by the fact that the PM and Treasurer both kind of used that as examples when they were talking about it on radio. It feels very much like one of those fly the flag type things where they say, we might do this, and then you wait and see what the response is like. Oh, can we get away with it? Or, oh, no, no, I didn't say we were going to. I just used the example. It looks like they're going to try and cap superannuation. I was... I've been pretty clear on super both the benefits and the potential boondoggles involved. I was surprised to read that even the Grattan Institute, who are a bit left-leaning, but generally pretty centre and pretty reliable with their analysis, um, said that if we capped super at $3 billion, $3 billion, $3 million let's not cap it at $3 billion, $3 million, it'd save the budget a $1 billion a year. Now, that's a lot of money, but it's also not that much money in the overall scope of things. I, I actually would have thought the numbers might have been a little bit higher than that. Now, maybe it gets higher as things go forward. Or I guess you maybe you index that number anyway. Um, how would you fix superannuation, mate? I mean, I've, I think first you've got to ask what, what it's for. I mean, just first principles, right? Like it, it was yeah. there to take the burden off the public purse um, yes. to look after, particularly the baby boomer generation with a big, big demographic bubble. Um they could very easily see what was going to happen. We can't, we can't fund it, so let's introduce super. And I think it's had a lot of success. I think it's a really great scheme. Mm. To my mind, <laughs> I don't know why this should be a controversial statement, but sometimes it is. It, it wasn't ever intended as a tax haven right. or, you know, or um, an estate planning mechanism or anything yep. like that. So I stick to the first um, principle of what it's for, and, and I, I think that's what it should be used for. I think once, once you've met your goal of, you know, you are provided for and then some in retirement, I I think that the benefits and the incentives should stop. I mean, why are the incentives that the incentives being the lower tax regime? Yeah. It, it, it is there to encourage you to do it. You don't need any more encouragement at a certain level. Now, <laughs> you can debate where that line is drawn. That's a more nuanced discussion. Right. But I mean, just to have a stupid example, at a billion dollars, you know, should you still be yeah. getting preferential concessional tax treatment? <laughs> that's right. You know, I-, I, I There's only so much you, you can take off the public purse at that sort of level, right? And and there is, there is the very, re- the, the core problem and challenge of politics is that there's only so much- 
money to go around, right? You, yep. You, yep. It, there is a compromise on everything. Anytime you spend a dollar on that program, it's not spe- being spent there. And we have the whole political apparatus wrapped around trying to figure out how we're going to sort of <laughs> do these things. So a billion dollars might yeah. not be a huge relative to GDP or even the, the national debt, but it's a billion dollars. And maybe that could use to be, you know, bulk up the, the, the hospital system or something that yeah. others might deem as, as more worthwhile. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I I completely agree. I so I've I've said this before. I this it, it, it every, everything is inherently political, right? I don't even mean that in a general sense. I mean in terms of any policy that has to go through parliament has a political lens to it. Um, there's that the general everything's political move, which is a whole different thing. Um, I so I don't like caps. I think caps are largely silly because they don't talk to the returns made from that money. And also it doesn't really talk to what you would do if you go over the cap. Now, we haven't seen the policy. There may be or may not be policy. There's talk it might be in the May budget, so maybe we've got to wait a few months. But let's say you get to $3.00001 million. Then what happens? Do you tax it 100%? Do you tax? Do you take the, make people take the money out, withdraw it every year to get back down below that threshold? If you do, what do you do with the money they take out? Is it taxable, is it not? I, I think because this is a growth asset super is a growth asset as, as an asset class if you like and as an asset structure a cap is it just makes zero sense to me you know if i've got three million dollars today i don't take any money out of it well it's three point something maybe it's three point three if a 10 percent average share market gain let's just make it really easy for my my little brain three point three then it's three point six three then it's probably close to four million dollars then it's and so if you don't touch it what do you do do you make people take that money out maybe you do but it just seems really weird to me can't you just um, can't you just say that the the concession concessional tax treatment applies up yep. to a certain amount and then it can yep. stay in there it's just it goes to regular tax amount and then and then or, or maybe you, you you base it more around withdrawals and when it's done you, you, you do it that way, right? So it's kind of like you're drawing an income. It happens to be from this source, but you'll pay the freight of the, the same rate of tax as you would as income tax. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, you can't, it's just really it's really messy, right? Like, you know, do I if I if I got I don't have unfortunately if I had three million dollars in my super, do I have to then watch it to make sure it stays below that? Take a dollar out every time it goes a dollar over, or or you know, it, it just, it's just it's just silly, right? As a, as a mechanism, I just the idea of capping it for its own sake, irrespective of the income drawn from it, drives me a little bit nuts. So you um, just do it purely I, on the income drawn, or so yeah. So look, I've got a, I was asking the question just just so I can give my answer, but but it's I had to really I, I, there's a really simple solution, right? So here's what I would do with Hit super. Me. I would say, so we know what the tax-free thresholds are now, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're whatever they are. I would simply say for everyone over 67, which is retirement age, your tax-free threshold now goes up to pension plus some number, 15 grand a year, call it just for fun. I don't know what the right number is called, 15 grand. Any money you earn from your pension, and by the way, everything you earn is taxable. Mm-hmm. So pension is taxable, super is taxable, work is taxable, everything's taxable. There's no, there's no tax-free income anywhere. But for the first, and let's say pension, I don't, I'm, let's say pension is thirty grand. Let's, let's call it that new tax free threshold forty five. Mm-hmm. So it's taxable, but if you only get the pension, you still fall below the tax free threshold, so you pay no tax on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you get ten grand, fifteen grand with a superannuation payment, you pay no tax on it. Completely fine. Mm. If you want to work a couple of hours a week, and you don't go over that threshold, then completely fine. But as you tip over that tax free threshold, your forty fifth thousand and first dollar you get taxed at the marginal tax rate of whatever it is, probably 15%, 30%, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you literally just say to people, superannuation is concessionally taxed in its accumulation through your life. But as you draw down money from super, as you work, as you get a pension over, 47, over 67, you just simply pay marginal rates of tax on it. And that way it's not about whether it's a $3 million or $4 million or $2 million super fund. It's like, okay, if you want to work, you should, because you know, older people working is a really good idea. It's good for mental health. It's good for the the health system. It's good for lots of things. Mm. Go and work. Good for physical health. Go and work. Get the pension. Get super. Whatever combination that is. Once you go over forty five grand, I'm going to start to tax you. That's, yeah. how, that's just how it works. I like, I just, it's very elegant. I, it just seems, yeah. Right. I just. I. I really. I've not been able. No one's ever been able to say it can't work because like this. It just seems like the easiest solution in the world. Then you don't have accumulation accounts and and pension accounts in super. You don't have to worry about how much money I've got in terms of total cap. If I work an extra hour, do I lose my pension? It's like, no, no, no. It doesn't, it just, you just have a higher tax-free threshold. And what about, on what so, about you know. the, the, the concessional treatment on on the way through though? So you, yep. you get advantages there. So if I'm, yes. and, and we know that money makes money, right? And so if you've yes. got a lot to start with, you're going to earn a lot more. Do you yes. do you still get to benefit from that with your 10 millionth dollar in, in that favorable environment? Yeah. 
I, I'm, I'm open to the difference, mate. I, I think I don't have a strong answer on that. Um, because there are concessional, there, there are limits to how much you can actually contribute during life at that concessional weight anyway. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I personally, <laughs> you're leading me down a horrible path here. Uh, I would, so if it was me, I think, and look, I'm open to changing any of this, right? This is just my, my kind of, you know, I've thought about it a bit, but I'm open to any changes. Mm. Um, I would allow concessional contributions as they currently exist, using superannuation guarantee. Uh, then on top of that, I would essentially tax it during accumulation because you want it to grow mm -hmm. to a size where it can actually take it, take care of people in retirement. Does that make sense to me? Mm -hmm. uh, I would then marginally tax the withdrawals from super. And it's already the case, by the way, apparently, that superannuation given to non-dependent kids is already taxed at 17% on the way back out as well. Mm. So you kind of get this, it's an effective inheritance tax. We don't call it that. No one mm -hmm. says that those words because death tax is political poison. But I think that kind of takes care of the, the residual, right? Like once you, if you do, if you don't, if you take it out during your life, you pay tax on it. If you don't take it out, your kids pay tax on it when you give it to them when you die. Mm. I think that, that to my mind kind of does the full life cycle of super quite nicely. So what the right rate is, for those things is an open question maybe 17% is not enough maybe it should be 30 or maybe it should be a marginal tax rate on the inheritance potentially I, I would be open to that as well mm. uh, but broadly speaking I think I would I would allow it to be concessionally taxed during its um, accumulation because you want it to grow to a size which takes care of the pension requirements mm. so I think that that's a positive it's an undoubted positive for me mm. but I just would just simply marginally tax the withdrawals from super and you also by the way that's how you catch up on the concessional stuff people say oh it's taxed twice it's taxed on the way in taxed on the way out it kind of is mm. but by using that marginal progressive tax rate you kind of you, you make good on, on the concessions on the way in mm. you just let it you let it compound during your working life at a good rate so that you have enough to, to offset the, the, the pension liability Look, I can I can get on board with that as as long as as I say I think that the as long as we move away from the unintended consequence of it it being a tax haven, that's that's sort of my yeah. this is where I sort of said like the yeah. devil the devil really is in in the detail but I think the the question of does it need to be looked at and could we make some easy changes I think the answer is a very strong yes um, yeah and, and then and then you get into the the detail of, of the debate but yeah it's it's not there it's not there so that that you can avoid a bunch of tax when you have absolutely no worries financially yeah, in retirement exactly yes. sorry I no I think, I think that's it, it and that's and no, you're right you're, you're dead right that's exactly the point and any tax any tax advantage given on top of that, are unnecessary and, and they actually hurt the... Here's the other thing. I think people talk about, oh, I don't want to pay tax. I should be taxed on super, blah, blah, blah. What you're effectively just saying is someone else should pay the tax instead. Mm. And that's that's where it comes down to the key fairness thing. It's like, okay, so you don't want to pay tax on your $5 million super fund, but you think someone working a factory job and earning 70 grand should pay 35 cents in the dollar tax. Mm. Is that really what you're actually... You know, <laughs> that, that, that's the, is that fair? Is that the first way to do it? Well, I've worked all my life and I've done... Okay, well, again, who, who, should, who should contribute more or, or you know, proportionally to the upkeep of society. I think it makes a whole lot of sense to your point because if you got a five million dollar super fund, you own ten percent on that. That's five hundred grand a year. <laughs> like it's not we're not talking small bickies here. This is not this is not replacing pension level. This is ten times the annual pension. Mm. At that point you've got to say, hey, something's something's not working properly <laughs> uh, and really, really should uh, you've really got to think about whether or how to what degree it actually works. Yeah, I, I, look, let's end it by just saying if you want to get angry, get angry at how the money is spent more so than how much is collected. <laughs> I mean, you can you have a view on both, but if, like, when I sort of shake my fist, it's more of like, okay, I'm happy. I get it. You know, we've, we, live, we live in a society. There's certain things that we all need to sort of chip in for. <laughs> but it's, it's, I get, it's, more, it's more how you spend it that rather than, mm -hmm. than the, the, how you collect it or, or how much you collect. Yeah. Let's answer some, question, let's answer some questions. Can we answer some other questions? I like my questions better. I've got another question. No, I have another question. Mate, let's, let's, let's go with that. Let's ask a question from, uh, what have we got first here? All right. Let's go with one from Jamison who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. Love the podcast. The Sunday episode is the highlight of my week. Thank you, Jamison. A question regarding dividend reinvestment plans. Does a company issue new shares for drips or other dividends used to buy existing shares on market? If it's the former, does dilution mean the shares acquired in the drips are less valuable? Than purchasing the equivalent shares on market with the dividends. Final question: What is your debt? What is your approach to evaluating debt in companies? Do you use any rule of thumb heuristics such as the current ratio or the debt to equity ratio? Thanks again. Your podcast is priceless. 
He says in brackets, my kind of price. <laughs> That's from Jamison. We have talked about drips before, mate. I was going to say, there's a lot of bells ringing here. Are you sure we, yeah. we didn't do this recently? No, different different question because this is about the... And he asked about the, the dividends, the shares acquired in drips being less valuable than purchasing equivalent shares on market with the dividends. This is in the hands of the shareholder themselves. Mm. Uh, but it's a, it's a similar type question in terms of what we should think about those dividend reinvestment plans. So I'll, I'll have first go, Jameson, because to your point, Ram, we have done a similar question a couple of weeks ago or so. Um, the shares that are acquired are not any more or less valuable than other shares, but the, the company itself, there's more dilution in that dividend reinvestment plan. So it, 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 the, the shares that are being acquired don't change value because the, the shares... Any all shares in the companies are worth the same amount, right? Because it's a proportional ownership. So you know whether whether they're fungible. Whether you're is getting the word those you're shares, looking for. fungible. Thank you. Whether you get those shares uh, versus if you held shares already and then you got some new shares that are acquired on market or that are diluted, it's not those new shares that are worth less. The whole thing is worth less because of that dilution. Mm-hmm. I hope that I hope that um, I hope that kind of difference is is clear, Jamison. Uh, broadly speaking, as we said last time. If a company is issuing new shares, then all of the shares are less valuable than if they purchase existing ones on the market. Does that, did, did that make sense when I was explaining that, Ram? Yeah, yep. I mean, and, and it's not necessarily one that's better than the other because, again, yep. it's, it's the old it depends. It depends. Like if they, if they, if <laughs> yep. by issuing new shares, they obviously don't have to pay for them. They get to keep the cash. Right. And if they can get a great return on that cash, then maybe yes. that's, that's a better way of, of, exactly. of going. If they're just going to, you know, use it to put some new carpet in the boardroom, then maybe not. You know, that, that's the question though. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So, yes. <laughs> All else being equal, dilution is worse than not being diluted. But if it's a question of how they best use that dollar of cash, if you can get a better return by using the money rather than using it to buy back shares, you're better off. I would argue overall... For, for for that for that theoretical example, I don't think most we've said this before. Most company companies aren't so good at capital allocation; they're doing it deliberately for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, most most are most are diluting you to keep the cash just because it suits their purposes, rather than you know that they can pay a higher dividend by issuing more shares than if they had to do it with cash. Mm-hmm. That, yep. like, fun, fundamentally, and that's I'm not going to say why they do it necessarily, but I'm absolutely sure it's part of their calculus, and it's just easier. Banks do this all the time. Uh, if you issue new shares, hey, look, I just created some new shares. Therefore, it doesn't hurt my capital ratio. Therefore, I can spend, I can spend in air quotes, more money. It is effectively spending on dividends than I could have had to fund it out of cash. Mm. So guess what? You're all very welcome. Your dividend yield seems higher. So look how good I am. Look how clever I am. You're very welcome. Uh, it's 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 more often than not, not always, more often than not, sleight of hand. The best companies, as Andrew says, will absolutely do the opportunity cost question. Mm. I, I would say, mate, that's less than 10% of companies genuinely do oh, the opportunity cost on this one. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Uh, what about debt, mate? How do you evaluate debt in company? How, uh, Jamison asks, do we use any rules of thumb like the current ratio or the debt to equity ratio? Yeah, I think the debt to equity, like any of these metrics or ratios, they've got a, mm. a purpose, but it's very high level and there's a lot of buts in, involved in it all. <laughs> it I mean, Yeah, it depends. I mean, yeah. if you're dealing with a transurban or a Sydney airport and the debt is held against very long-lived, durable likely to retain their value assets, it's probably not a huge deal. You'll always be able to roll that debt over, maybe under better or worse conditions. And I don't want to suggest there's no risk. There absolutely is. <laughs> I'm just yeah. saying it's a different kettle of fish than a, uh, a a company that doesn't have any real tangible assets to back it up. Maybe it's in an area that has much more volatile earnings. Again, taking COVID out out of the picture, something like Sydney Airport has pretty reliable revenue streams. Uh, Transurban has pretty yeah. reliable uh, revenue streams. So, <laughs> well, so, they did, but yeah, yeah. So, I, 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 COVID's kind of the point, though, right? It, it is the oh yeah, once in a hundred the black swan. You can bring you right, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Although it's not technically a black swan, but yes, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, so I, I look at those things. All else being equal, less debt is better, but debt yeah. does have a use. I mean, yeah. I think that too often companies lean towards raising capital on the market rather than taking on debt. When, when you issue new shares, those shares, unless they do buybacks down the track, which, mm-hmm. which are less common, they tend to be forever. 
Uh, and there, as, yep, as you've absolutely. just said, that dilution cost is is a real cost. Debt comes with an interest payment, and and the person who lends you the money is first in line if, if anything terrible <laughs> sort of happens. Yeah. Um, but you pay that back, and and shareholders retain their stake in 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 the business or their their equivalent stake in the business. Um, uh, it's it's like I mean. It's just like you would look at it in your own situation. You know, no no one really bats an eye if someone's got a mortgage against their house if it's a, at a conservative level and they can easily service. It's a good thing, in fact. It helps it helps in, in a lot of ways. Same with businesses. Just watch how, how, how much they extend themselves, what's the maturity profile, what's the interest yeah. cost, yeah. Uh, all, all of those kinds of things. And, and um, yeah, I think that's how I look at it. Yeah, I, I'm 100% with you, mate. I... No debt is always safest. Um, on ba- and and here's, I'm going to go back to it's a portfolio approach or a probabilistic approach. They're the same thing effectively mm. because, you know, if you never ever bought a company with debt, you can never ever lose 100% of your of your money because the debt costs become overwhelming. Mm. So if you're if you are in the job of pure risk elimination, then buy companies without debt take one lot of risk off the table it's absolutely true and so if you're saying you know which which is safer that's a very easy question to answer mm. but I would suggest that if you bought 20 companies with debt that on average that's going to create more value even if a couple of them suffer maybe even one goes broke because of the debt it's got now not every case not every 20 companies and that sort of stuff but probabilistically to Andrew's point because you're using that money hopefully wisely not diluting uh, getting a return on that debt, you know, if if, uh, if Andrew said to me, "Look, Scott, here's what I'll do: I will I will lend you money at one percent, and you can invest it in Australian government bonds, paying four percent. I will borrow as much money as Andrew will let me borrow. Is that riskier than get, having no debt? Well, I guess. I mean, the Australian government could could you know fold, and and the Australian government bonds could be worthless. Andrew could come and re- repossess my house and say, "Well, I lent you the money, and you didn't pay me back." I said, "Well, the government went broke. He says I don't care. I want the money back." So, is there a chance? Yeah. But every day of the week, I would borrow one and invest in government bonds at four if I was allowed to. Now, that doesn't exist because no one's silly enough to lend me that money. And even Andrew's smarter than no, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, Andrew's much smarter. Than that. He'd, he'd try and lend them at 40% and tell me he got a 2% return. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, that, but that's so, you know, there are times when if that debt is used well, as Andrew says, there is very much a, a very worthwhile. Uh, you know, way to use that debt. Does it does it does it add risk? Absolutely. Now, to your point, uh, interest cover is one that I look at reasonably closely, and frankly, more closely in the last two years than than probably in the decade and a half before that. So, interest cover is simply how 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 far how, to what degree do the company's profits cover the interest cost? So, if you're making a dollar in profit, and your interest cost is ninety two cents. Okay, I'm a little bit concerned by that because the interest never rise much until it subsumes your entire pre interest profit. If your profit is a dollar and your interest is two cents, that could double and double and double and double again and still be you know less than fifty cents, and I'm completely completely fine. Mm. So, interest cover is probably the one thing I would look at when I'm looking at it. Debt to equity, I don't really care that much about because it's kind of interesting, but it's not particularly useful in and of itself, um, unless because again the debt's got to be repaid, but in theory it can be rolled over. Again, the higher. It is the riskier it is, so I, I do care a little bit. Mm. Um, but it's very much the ability of that company to meet the interest payments. That is the core of assuming the lenders are half smart. Um, by the way, when it's interest cover, also consider the range of outcomes, right? So not just cover today when everything's going well, but what if this company got itself into trouble? We've seen plenty of companies refinance their debt at really usurious rates because they got into trouble. And the banks went, well, if you want to keep our debt, you're going to have to do this and this and this instead. It's like, oh, man, okay, fine. Mm. So it can go, it absolutely can go badly. Yep. No, I agree. Thank you, Jamison. Really good question, mate. Uh, one from Dan. Hi, Scott and Ram. I hope this email finds you both well. I recently finished listening to the audiobook version of Ben Graham's The Intelligent Investor. And I have to say it was quite an experience. I'd love to know what that, uh, what that means. I, I found the book to be quite dense and it required yeah. my full attention which is why I opted for the audiobook form. As I was listening, I came across a suggestion that the average retail investor should have 90% of their funds in index funds and the rest in individual stocks, as the average investor can't expect to outperform the experts and instead should seek a market return. I'm not sure if this was written by Graham himself or if it was written in the chapter commentary, but I wanted to reach out and ask if you both think this is still sound advice that is relevant today. In conclusion, you like this, mate. In conclusion, I wanted to let you know this email may be a podcast first. 
It was written by ChatGPT. <laughs> I look forward to hearing back from you both and hope to see you discuss this topic on a future episode. Best regards, Dan. Very cool. There you go. I don't know. How, how do you write something? Oh, well, it definitely wasn't Graham because index funds went around yeah, uh, at the time. So it, it was it, it's something that was added in afterwards. Um, Probably either a Buffett forward or Jason Zweig, I think, is the current editor of the current Okay, edition, yes. Yeah. I think. And it is, a dense, right. it is a dense book. I, I've got to yep. say it, it's one of those things that you could – you. Despite it, it's all its wisdom, you can really condense down to to a lot of it. I, I reckon there's a, it's one of those books that everyone says they've read, but not many people not many people have, have read it or certainly um, finished it. Um, to the question itself, uh, again, it, it it depends. <laughs> Ask anyone if they're an above average driver, and everyone's <laughs> yeah. an above average. Ninety percent of us. Correct. Correct. Ask uh, a male investor if they're above average investor, <laughs> and we're all above average investors. Ninety nine percent of that one, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if the if the question is should the average investor do something <laughs> like that, I probably largely agree. Actually, yep. uh, and then quietly lean back in my armchair and, and happily chortle to myself that well, I'm clearly above average, so I sh- I should definitely have a different ratio to that. Um, <laughs> I think I think, uh, and I've always said this: it's investing is easy but not simple. It's it's that idea that if you don't have to be a genius to mm. do well. It doesn't have to be a, a, a job that you slave over and hate. But if you put a bit of effort into learning <laughs> yeah, and doing yeah. it and you're serious about it and you're risk averse, you, you know, you're not, you're not doing silly things in other words. Mm-hmm. I think that's 90% is a very high proportion. Uh, and my point I always make too is if you enjoy it or if you get a bit of a kick out of it, I, if you're not, then then definitely just go all, all ETFs. But if, if you are, I, I, it's a source of great pleasure and interest for me personally. Not because it's just about trying to make money. It's just how the world works and taking a view on on the outlook of things and, and being able to sort of participate in it. It's just, it's kind of a it's kind of a cool thing. And, and I think anyone that even if you had 80% of your money in direct stocks and you were managing that yourself, I don't think... I don't think that is necessarily risky if it's if it's something you do in a in a prudent and wise fashion, even if you are relatively new in your investment journey. And it doesn't have to be something that you just jump to it. Maybe you start off at ninety percent, and as you gain more experience and learn more, you just slowly adjust that. Um, it's basically it's basically there are you only have to get on average over a long period of time an extra two or three percent out of the market for that to make a huge difference at retirement. Yeah. Correct. Oh, and so I think for me, two percent over time, massive. Uh, you know, and and so it, that's that's a big part of the appeal. But yeah, um, yeah, g- give give it a go. Just take it seriously, right? That's the only thing I suggest. Everyone's in it for the any, you come for the money, but sort of stay stay for the <laughs> what's the word? Stay for the long term wealth creation. You know, it it, <laughs> it 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 is something that you will need to take seriously. It's something you need to go in eyes wide open because mm-hmm. you're going to have really crappy periods along the way. I don't care who you are. You just you just are and you've got a you've you've it's a journey of self-discovery as i've said recently yeah. i i think it's a really wonderful thing to do so don't um, you know that that's a lot of wisdom in that book mm-hmm. i think it is a pretty good suggestion for someone who's not really that interested and not prepared to do it but if you are and if you're listening to this podcast you probably are um yeah, that's right. I, i'd encourage you to go a little a little bit higher at the very least mm-hmm. because there's great reward and, and satisfaction in it yeah i i i agree almost entirely mate um, I, I think the end of your answer and the beginning of your answer kind of stand at somewhat opposite ends of of, of the spectrum, and that's probably the the it depends version of again of, of the answer, right? Of um, the average investor by definition should invest in ETF, literally by definition, because you average invest, you get an average result. That's exactly what you should do, because paying fees to get an average result makes no sense. So the average, I've I've got to write this up more more cleverly and clearly somewhere else. The paradox of investing is that as a group, none of us should pick stocks. Because we all get the average result, less fees. So you could avoid the fees other than a really tiny ETF fee um, and, and get the average return, which, which is, is there's more value created by that than trying to do it yourself or pay someone else to do it. Yeah. Almost by definition. But <laughs> everyone should index except the people who can actually beat the market who are above average because if there is an average and someone must be above, someone must be below, again, by definition, yeah. those who are above average should do it. Like if you're Tiger so Woods you- and someone says, right. hey, do you want to play in my golf tournament? There's a prize at stake. Right. Give it a go. You know, if, if yeah. they ask yeah. me, well, you know. It's right, not- exactly. And if they asked all of us and said, hey, do you want 100 bucks and don't compete in my, my tournament mm. or, or or the chance of winning a million dollars, 
but you're playing at Tiger Woods, we should go like, well, I'll take every every check the hundred bucks because yeah. it just makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But because there is a Tiger Woods, there's a Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. Buffett, you know, every, the average investor should index. Everyone should index. Literally everybody, the market should index. Buffett's even written about this, and he himself picks stocks, right? This is the absolute paradox. As a total society, we should all index because the ones who are below average are costing themselves money by not doing it. And if you don't know if you're going to be above or below, then take the average. So mm-hmm. it's it's hundred percent true. But as I said, because there is the Warren Buffetts and the Tiger Woods, or even not even the Buffetts and Woods, the the the, the club pro who's playing off scratch, right? Versus the hacker like me or Andrew who are paying off, you know, a handicap of eighty four. Um, you know, we we should know our place. Now the club pro is going to do better than average, so the club pro should pay for money. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. The rest of us should say, well, we'll have the average. Thank you very much. It, it is knowing where you are on that spectrum of Andrew's point that matters, and, and also and just to expand of, on the uh, sorry to interrupt, but the, the club pro is is in that position because they've put a lot of effort into that. Yeah, to, and they, to, and they know play. they're good yeah. by the way too. Yeah. They're, not, they're not deciding if <laughs> you don't have to decide at, at twelve. Am I going to be a club pro and make money out of it? They they go and practice, they play a bit, they realize they're pretty good at it. They put more time and effort into it. They get better. That that betterness mm-hmm. gives you better results. Okay, well now I have a reason to believe I should do this for a quid. Mm-hmm. So it makes, it makes a whole lot of sense. I I actually think that that approach, and it probably is Jason Zweig, I imagine, who said that. Buffett said something similar. He's, um, he's I think, it may, they may even be Buffett's words. They're, they're very close to what Buffett said. In fact, his estate is going to be invested in the S&P 500 index fund. That's what he's told his, his executives to do. So, you know, I, I think when Buffett says it, you can pretty much take it to the bank. But... I, I, what I like about the 90 plus 10 is the idea of saying, let's start with an ETF or ETFs, plural, and then pick some stocks and see how good you are and then go from there. Um, don't fall to hubris. Don't fall to arrogance. Uh, don't believe you've done it once, therefore you're great at it or you did it for a year and you got, you got lucky, so therefore I should keep doing it. If you're an energy investor last year, you're a genius. If you're a tech investor last year, you're an idiot. Except if you look back over time, tech stocks have done fantastically better than energy stocks. So who's the best investor? Well, you know, again, you can you can take your you make your choice. But broadly speaking, I think I think starting with ETS plus something, and if you're good at it, do more of the thing you're good at, makes a whole lot of sense. And if you're not good at it, wind it back, go with the ETFs, go fishing. Listen to listen to this podcast for fun and interest and enlightenment and, and enjoyment, but recognize if you suck at it, most people are not going to be better than average again, by definition, as Andrew said, <laughs> then you know you need to know you're not that person. And doing it over and over again and getting a terrible result. It's just kind of super counterproductive, right? You might as well go and burn hundred dollar notes at the front of the house. Yeah. Um, so you know, no, no, no. What? How will you do? No, no. What you're good at? Know how you do it, and then and then choose your path accordingly. I just want a very very quick follow up in in regard to that book. I said before, yeah. there's only a, a couple of lessons or big big ideas from. I think what Graham did was the first to really objectively look at what we would today call fund, the fundamentals. Yeah. He he tied the financials. The, the operating fundamentals of the business mm. to the share price it kind of seems like well of course but <laughs> they, they, it, it was never it was it, it, he brought a more scientific sort of approach mm. to to that Buffett uh, um, you know having him as his mentor obviously took mm. that ran with it further and others have since evolved and the, the whole process has sort of gone that way but that that's that for me is the, is the key takeaway is that they're not just tickers that's I think the modern relevance to to the the substance of the book is that. Yeah. Would you add anything? If I, I'm obviously I've missed a whole bunch of detail. I think that's the oversweeping um, kind of I, overarching idea. Look, I think so. So Buffett himself has said, read. Uh, he said, read particularly chapters eight and twenty in the Intelligent Investor. Uh, so the chapter eight is basically about the uh, behavioural investing. Oh, yeah. Chapter twenty is about yes. margin of safety. Yeah. So those are the two things that Buffett. You know. Re- re- I, it's one of those the intelligent investor. All those fun, all those foundational books are ones that you kind of go, ah, oh, you probably need to read it because it's just the fundamentals. Yeah. Except we've all read it and we learn the fundamentals by reading it. So I'm I'm loath to say that people don't bother or you don't need to. Um, you, you read these things and go, oh, the, obviously it's easy. You just have to understand this and this and this. Like you understand it maybe by reading. So I'm yeah. less inclined to say don't bother. But if you want to grow it, it is a bit dense. At least read chapters eight and twenty. Buy it just for that. It's worth it just for that. Mm. Um, Reading is a funny thing. Re- reading, reading is not just every book can be can be written in a page, right? Here are the key, here are the key issues. Here are the key points made. That's all you need to know. The thing is, we we learn experientially. We're we're story based creatures as humans, and I think my my I, I've come back a long way. For I used to read those little excerpts, the four page excerpts about the key ideas or something. And the key ideas are fine. You can intellectually get them. The idea of immersing yourself in a book and reading, watching someone or listening to someone, reading someone describe something to you. 
and actually kind of experiencing that learning by the description of the story that goes with it, I think is really, really powerful. So I would, I used to be a, one of those, you know, read the brief, Cliff Notes version. Uh, it's fine if you're doing an exam. If you want to get good at something, particularly something like this, I would recommend reading the book. But at least chapters 8 and 20, yeah. Mm. Yep. Anything more on that? No, I was, when you said storytelling animals, it reminded me of that, um, I forget who said it now, that quote was just like, human, these humans are storytelling, status-seeking monkeys. And I've, I've always <laughs> stuck with me. Like you look at our core drivers yeah. and what yeah, we, how we're absolutely. sort of special. You yep. know, it's, it's, I think there's a lot to be said in that. Anyway. Yeah, 100% is. So I, and I, I, just, I just think it's really, again, I, I don't want to overdo it, but... There's a, there's a view and it's completely perfect. You can get the key tenets of any book in a page, mm. A4 page. But if you really, really want to understand it, it's the examples, it's the lessons, it's the, it's the journey they take you on of here's a thing, here's this thing, here's what it is, here's how it works, here's some examples, here's why it's relevant. You go, oh yeah, I, I really get it. Other than, oh, so-and-so said these things. Marginal safety is great, right? Mm. What you should do is have a marginal safety. Okay, that makes sense. What does that really mean? Show me the example. Tell me the story. You know, when you when you do really spend a little bit of time learning about it, it just, it just it hooks in our brains better. We we just we love stories. We learn from stories in, in a really fundamental way. So I would uh, I would be a a big fan of that personally. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. All right, uh, mate. Question from oh dear from anonymous. Um, probably for a very good reason. I'm going to hold you on a short leash on this one, Andrew. Hi, Scott and Andrew. Thanks for the honest reality check each week regarding investing and the reminder that it's a long-term journey rather than a short sprint. Unfortunately, Scott, this is a Bitcoin question. But perhaps I was hoping when you application. said Yeah, yeah, you were. <laughs> you have both indicated your relative positions on Bitcoin before, with Andrew being the most bullish. And until I heard the pros and cons in the recent podcast, I'd been very skeptical. But Andrew's comment of investing a very small portion of his portfolio with a heads I win, tails I don't lose too much approach convinced me to reevaluate my stance, also on a very small proportion of my portfolio. Unfortunately, says Anonymous, I made the mistake of investing with one of the quotes industry recommended, close quotes, Australian exchanges. That was not FTX, but unbeknownst to me, it was purchasing Bitcoin via FTX. The collapse of FTX has sent the Aussie exchange into administration too, with a potential 65% return of funds invested over the next five years, exclamation mark. So a one-third loss, you've got to wait five years to get the money back. My question, while specific to Bitcoin here, might extend to ETFs or funds too. As an investor, how far should we dig into how these exchanges or ETFs are run or the companies they invest in or with? How would you inform yourself that the vehicle or organization or ETF was legitimate and worth investing in. Mm. To Scott's human psychology interest, the lesson hurts, again, but at least I didn't lose too much. Kind regards. That's from D. D, the letter D, not D as in the female name D. D, who wants to remain anonymous, which is fine with me. Um, it's a good question, mate. I, I'm going to have first swing at this because you're the Bitcoin aficionado, but I'll, I'll take the other angle of this one. Um, <coughs> what I, I, I won't talk about Bitcoin or crypto generally, uh, they're the same thing as Andrew one knows, Bitcoin and crypto. Don't trigger me. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, 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 really good question. What's important about shares, which is still coming to other asset classes in different to different degrees, is that there is much, much, much better regulation for the exchanges, uh, the funds, uh, the way you go about buying and selling shares or, or ETFs directly. Uh, they use trust structures. The regulator requires things called responsible entities. It's a very, very, very well-regulated circumstance. Now, uh, with an exception. So if you buy shares in a Vanguard ETF, BetaShares ETF, I think that's about as safe as houses. Uh, there's, there are scenarios in which some, some sort of horrible, horrible mismanagement or mal- malfeasance could maybe possibly do something but the chances are so incredibly, incredibly small, it's not worth thinking about. Similarly, if you have your shares invested with Chess or the Chess registered through your broker, re- again, a chance in some weird combination of circumstances, could it possibly, are there circumstances in which I can imagine it? Yeah, kind of just because nothing is perfect and whatever, but it's as good as you're going to get and a, just miles, miles, miles better than anything else. The the wrinkle here, and why I want to make this distinction on shares before I throw over to you with, with Bitcoin and crypto, Andrew, is if your broker holds shares in what they call the street name. 
That means that it is their legal property and you are the person who is nominally um, uh, owns those assets. In other words, if I took if I took Andrew's money and Alice's money, put it all together and said, I'm going to invest a, say, a million dollars in total from all of you guys. And look, Andrew put in 10 grand's worth. So he's, he, he's nominally worth 10 grand, uh, but the money's in my name. I'm going to go and invest it over here. And if it goes badly... If I go broke and use my shares to pay that off, Andrew's got no particular legal recourse to that. There's no, there's no specific ownership. There's no those shares are actually Andrews. Andrew's got a nominal interest in these. And we've seen businesses like Opus Prime. You might remember that name from the dim distant past. It went broke taking risks on its own account, and the shares that it owned that were actually the the, the customers thought they owned were actually owned by Opus Prime. And so when it got in strife, those shares, those assets were actually taken, firstly used in the in the business, and then taken by creditors. Now, if you have chess, that doesn't work that way. I would always, always, always use a chess broker for that reason. So if you do, again, there's, there's always risk with absolutely everything, so I'm not going to say everything's risk-free. If you have a, an ETF with a very large known beta shares or Vanguard, I think you're about as safe as you're going to be. If you have a stockbroker that uses chess, you're as safe as you could possibly be. If your broker puts your shares in a street name, if you're not chess-sponsored, I just wouldn't do it. Uh, I'm not saying they will go broke. It's just, it's just unnecessary risk you're taking. Mm. So don't do it um, because like Opus Pro and others, there are circumstances in which your assets could disappear despite the fact you think you, uh, you know, legally, theoretically own them. You don't, at least in that context. So just be really, really, really careful there. There'll be some listeners here who use street name brokers and they're happy with them. That's cool. Uh, I, you, couldn't, you couldn't pay me to do it. The, the, the incremental cost of using chess is just, it's insurance. It's just the cheapest insurance in the world. Mm. So I would, I would personally do that. Um, now, other asset classes don't have the same degree of regulation, i.e. Uh, someone like an ASIC making them do stuff, nor do they have necessarily the industry level background or, or systems circumstances to support or protect their customers and I'm not say other I'm not being um, I'm not I'm not obliquely referring to crypto specifically I'm talking about anything else there's art dealers out there there's uh, wine dealers there's you know you Gold. store your wine in a particular yeah you're right yeah exactly there's, the property is not covered at all by ASIC at least in the, in the context of advice so there are other asset classes across the board where I would be much 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 more careful if you store your wine in you know Pages Wine Storage Incorporated what happens if he gets into financial trouble is the wine des- definitely yours who's who's what same with gold who who owns the gold if things go badly um, so you need to know those things but also probably crypto Andrew you can take this one away you actually what you described there with Opus Prime was exactly FTX yeah right. that's exactly what happened people thought Beach they were buying yeah. it they said oh yep. yeah we've got some for you it's here's a, here's a screen we'll show you a screen with your balance on it <laughs> but it wasn't there you know, and they're gambling on it, and it's sort of um, it's, it's such a tragedy, and and so yeah, it's chalk and cheese. The the reason that the share market and ETFs are different is not because that they are more moral or better. It's just we've already we've been through that. <laughs> we, <laughs> That's right. Humanity had that experiment and then realized, wait a sec, we need mm. some adults in the room. We need some <laughs> regulation, and, and and we that's the regulation that we enjoy yeah. today because yeah. we're dumb and we had to learn the hard way, yeah. and and the uh, quote unquote crypto industry just just learned it the hard way. It was always going to happen, and and, and now hopefully they've learned from it, and hopefully yeah. regulators seem to be taking action, and hopefully they they will do it. But my condolences because it really does suck and this is what happens when the cowboys <laughs> and the grifters and that get involved mm, mm. um i guess what i the, the, so the saying is not your keys not your coins and here's one of the sort of mind blows with with this kind of stuff is that when you actually really think about it and you look at the assets that you own i mean what, do you really own it i can show you a screenshot of when i log into my bank mm, account mm. i i can i can show you my chess account and show you what shares i've got in there but the, one of the cool things about bitcoin is that it's a bare asset like i actually mm. own it like, there is nothing in the world that you can do to take it off me or no one can <laughs> short of holding a gun to my head and putting my thumb in the thumb screws and torturing <laughs> it out of me that's that is literally the only way you'll yeah. get it and yeah, so that's yeah. that's one of the big ideas and so i've i've said this before one of the great ironies of this whole crypto blow up is that mm. someone invented that and then we all said yeah cool can you custody it for me and do it in an unregulated <laughs> environment and gamble yeah. on it and it's like it's just like crazy <laughs> like it's, these are the problems that we're trying to sort of get away from so if you are going to um, buy some bitcoin don't buy I'm not we can't give advice mm. but I'm going to say don't buy crypto don't, if you know, if you like money, don't buy crypto. If I you, agree. Don't buy any crypto. If you're going to buy uh, Bitcoin, on the other hand, um, I'll just say listen to the episode rather than repeating <laughs> the, the case here. Um, 
if, if it's any material <laughs> amount, buy a hardware wallet, buy it and, and store, your, store it there, put your keys in a safe place. And it's it's as safe as ha- it's safer than houses. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Yes, uh, unless you lose the key to your house. Yeah, but you know, it, it's like that's the same with gold, right? I could give you a massive lump of gold. Here you go. Is it valuable? Do you want it? Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you lose it, it's gone. Okay, yeah. I'll take. You know, <laughs> you'll if it's a hundred bucks. Okay, maybe you'll 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 lose it somewhere. If you've got like a, any mm-hmm. material part of your life savings, in, I'm I'm pretty sure any capable person could look after that. The other, the other thing, of course, is that there's, there's a whole bunch of custodial uh, solutions that mm-hmm. range f- across the spectrum. There's cool multi-sig things you can do. So I can give one key to my account and one to my mom, and I'm, I'm always, you know, even if I lose keys, I'm safe. So yeah, anyway, it's so, it's so hard not to keep going down that path, but it's, but let's, it's fascinating. Let's anyway. yeah, um, let's <laughs> I'll pull myself let's, up. <laughs> let's go to a question from Rich. Hi, chaps. I'm an avid listener to your podcast and I'm a share advisor and extreme opportunity subscriber. Thank you, mate. Keep the rants coming, says Rich. All right, if Can you insist. I must be sad, but I prefer to listen to your dulcet tones when I'm running than to music nowadays. I guess that makes you inspiring. You heard it here first. Although he says I'm getting slower. Yeah, I'm not sure. Probably, probably our fault. My question, I use Comsec as the platform for my portfolio. However, you mentioned a few other platforms that offer $0 brokerage. And this appeals to me since I wish to regularly, it says in brackets, monthly, contribute to one of the ETFs I own using an auto-invest feature. Here's the question. Can you see any issues with me liquidating my portfolio with Comsec and then rebuying all the shares and ETFs I had owned with Vanguard the same day, or at least close to the same day as will take the money a few days to come through? As I had only bought most of them the past 18 months to two years, my portfolio was well on the red, so I will suffer losses on the sale. Good for tax offsets, he says in brackets. Plus, I hold conviction in the long run, the shares and ETFs will go up from here. I plan to hold for five plus years. I don't think this would be a dodgy practice unless I was selling on 30th of June and rebuying on the 1st of July. Can you confirm this is above board? Great now, question. Mm. I'm going to say we're not tax accountants. So I'm not going to confirm anything, Rich, because uh, honestly... You'd be mad and I'd be mad to suggest that I could help you do something that may lend you in trouble with the ATO. And when you say Scott Phillips said so, they would say, Scott who? What the hell are you doing listening to him? And you're absolutely right. I would absolutely ask an accountant, mate, a reasonable ATO, a, a reasonable tax man, given the circumstances, would I hope suggest it was completely fine because yeah. you are doing it deliberately to change brokers. And so there's, there's a very clear rationale, there's a very clear reason, all that kind of stuff. The problem with the tax law is it's really, really vague. So the ATO has really broad what they call anti-avoidance powers. And if they made the case you were doing it to avoid tax or to claim those tax losses, uh, particularly if you're offsetting them against a capital gain at the same time, they may simply take a different view. And I'm not the ATO and I'm not the, the judge. I don't get to decide these things. So... A very reasonable person would say, that seems reasonable, seems like you're doing it for the right reasons, particularly if you're not offsetting against the current year gain, you don't gain anything by that tax loss because you can't use it for anything. So if if that was all you were doing, I, I think ATO would be really, really rugged to hold you accountable to that. Yeah, I think but you're mate, fine. I honestly can't, but I can't tell you they won't. So I, I you know, uh, morally, ethically, is it above board? Yeah, it, genuinely for the reasons you're saying, particularly if you can't offset it against a gain, uh, I, I, it would be... <laughs> It'd be really brutal for the ATO to say, "Well, you were trying to avoid tax by doing this thing," uh, but mate, I, ju- I just can't. I just can't tell you that you know. You know, I can't tell you they will decide that way. So I, I I'm going to just say straight out, I don't know. Ask your accountant at the very least. Document what you're doing uh, and why you're doing it. Um, but I just don't know. Andrew, do you have any any thoughts on add on that? I think you're fine. <laughs> I'm not as cautious yeah? as you. Yeah, I think you're totally fine. Yeah, it's not the what what the ATO has a problem with is wash trades. And there's a certain definition around that. I, I don't think this meets that that definition. Yeah, uh, and that, you know, it, it's also something that I don't think a one-off event would be enough to trigger anything either. Yeah. Like if you're doing this every year, I think, hang on, wait a sec, what's going here? <laughs> going on here? I think you're yeah. absolutely safe. Uh, but but uh, you're right yeah. to point out we we just can't make that 100 percent assurance. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think, I think. It'd, be, it'd be brutally again. Yeah. yeah. 
I think that's it seems it seems completely okay to me, but I, I don't know. And again, I don't want you to do it and then come back and ask us what's going on. Hey, he also says, I don't, this one I don't know, mate, just just so you say. Also, do you know if Vanguard produced dividend and annual tax statements in the same way Comsec do? I don't know, mate. Um, I don't know Vanguard well enough. I don't use Vanguard's personal investor. I've been thinking about doing it for a while. I've got different brokerages. I've got, I've got Comsec. Uh, I've got a Perler account for a young bloke. I've got a Sharesies account that we have for him because he could trade little amounts of stuff so he could just have, do some active investing on his own account. So there's stuff all over the place. Uh, I don't need a fourth <laughs> a fourth broker. So uh, yeah, I, I, I like all those guys. I've said before, I've done some work for Sharesies in the past. I still do some work for Sharesies. So uh, full full disclosure there as well. Not that it matters. It's His account's like got 75 bucks in it or something. But just just so you know, that's, um, it, 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 we opened that for that reason. Mm. Um, a Perler is great. I like those guys too and a Comsec's been fine for me it's not the cheapest uh, it's pretty full featured I just can't be bothered moving it does a perfectly fine job yeah yep no, I'm humming. nothing to add beautiful let's go to a question from Jeff I think this will be a short answer mate hi Scott and Ram you can use my name but please use Jeff because the only time someone calls me Jeffrey it's because I'm in big trouble <laughs> no worries Jeff we'll see how we go thanks for the podcast I've been a regular listener for a couple of years I was a founding member of Share Advisor in Australia thank you mate and I'm a free member of strawman.com. He says in brackets, though, I can't quite remember what that is. Jeffrey, <laughs> don't, don't lead me down the path. You. I'm going to call you Jeffrey, Jeffrey. <laughs> don't, don't get me in trouble. I read in Vanguard article that for the last two quarters of 2022, the ETF fund inflows into bond funds exceeded or were close to that, those for share funds. Now, I know you guys are share guys, as am I, but could you see any circumstances where you would invest in bonds and why, especially given the industry mantra of various share to bond ratios? Thanks again. And that is from Jeff this time. He's not Jeffrey because he's not having a go. Mm-hmm. Uh, mate, uh, what would entice you to invest in bonds? Not much. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, I think, oh, where do you start? So the, the trouble with bonds is that the... Uh, it, how may I say this? there's an inflation risk. So if you're if you're talking about a one or two year bond, you're going to get paid back in full. If it's a government bond, there's no chance of it defaulting because they just print the money out of thin air. You'll get it back and you'll get the nominal coupon rate along the way. So it's extraordinarily low risk. Um, of course, you can still lose money in the interim, or and especially if you're dealing with a ten year bond or a thirty year bond, because unless you plan to hold that to maturity, you know, if interest rates go up, well, the bonds tend to go down in value. The, 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 the face value of the bond goes down in value. So ask anyone who, who started invest. Imagine someone who put a retiree retired at, what was it, about a year, 18 months ago, and put all their money in bonds. They've, they've been wiped out. I mean, not wiped out, but they've lost very significant sums of their capital. Those bonds will be paid in full when they when they come due and they'll get, but you know, it's sort of like, you're gonna be underwater all that way through. And at the end, depending on the, again, the maturity profile of, of the bond portfolio, um, you know, maybe maybe if we, if we, just to make the numbers round, if we run at 5% for the next 10 years, well, that's, that's 50, more. 55% of your purchasing power lost. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not right. coming at this from a doomer angle. I'm not, but just inflation is a very yeah, real thing. Just reality. And yeah. if, if the, the interest rate that you've got along the way hasn't offset you for that, and, and mm-hmm. you've seen this massive drop in face value along the way, it's just, I've got to be careful here because I'm really going against this, the industry dogma. And, and I don't want to suggest that bonds are this hyper risky investment. They're not. But I, I just think that they are sometimes purported to be much safer than the reality would suggest. And so for me, yeah. for me, yeah. when I don't have, I've got, what I've got is money in quote unquote risk assets mm. and then I've got everything else. And the everything else for me is pretty much an ING savers account because I largely <laughs> want to be fully invested. And, and frankly, uh, well, things are sort of changing a bit now, but like the interest rate I'm getting there is, is not too dissimilar to what I would get in a bond anyway. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that's, that's how I roll. Yeah, I, so I wouldn't even, I'm not even that, um, over time, shares should beat bonds. Uh, they have in the past. I expect they will in the future. Not by the and way. By the way, sorry to interrupt. Not have beat. They've thrashed bonds. Right. There you go. Thrashed. Uh, and uh, so, generally speaking, and this is I, I say this regularly, but I'll say it again. There is the theoretical answer, and there is the behavioural answer. Right. So they rec- they people recommend the bond shares mix because at, they they want to largely almost always. Use bonds to moderate the volatility of shares. Often, not always, often when shares go down, bonds go up. 
Uh, and bonds just don't move as widely, wildly, generally, as shares do. So again, these are generalizations. But if you're if you're putting together a financial plan, you're trying to say to people, here's what you should do. It'll minimize your chance of losing a lot of money in any particular time period. It'll make you feel more comfortable. Um, it's a bit like super, right? When super goes down, the average super fund goes down 4%. It's because the market fell 10% and property was flat. Generally speaking, it's what has happened in the past, right? So you get this sense of like, you know, the, it moderates those those changes. Now, when they both go in the wrong direction, like recently, it doesn't help. But the idea is largely volatility protection is, is normally what those most people do the bonds and shares things for. And the chance that at 63 or 64, you have a bad year in shares when you were planning on selling your portfolio the next year. So it's supposed to smooth things out, generally speaking, and they're supposed to be, to some degree, non-correlated assets. Now, again, it's not always the case, but it's usually the case. Um, it's just, it, to, to my mind, I've said this many, many, many times, uh, I want the best possible long-term return I can get. So I don't mind the volatility of shares. I'm happy to do that because I, you know, if, I, if I've got a 20, 30, 40% of my portfolio in an asset class going to underperform over time, I'm costing myself returns. The longer I leave it like that, the more, more returns I'm costing myself. Now, as I said, the market fell 38% in April 2020. If I was going to retire in May, I'm pretty unhappy if I was 100% shares. If I was going to cash out at that point and buy a house or a boat or something, I'm really unhappy that I went with this all share strategy. But if I'd done it three years earlier, I still would have made money. Uh, if I'd invested three years, I was still up. right? And then, of course, the shares went back up again after that. So to my mind, I get kind of why people would suggest putting bonds in a portfolio to try and moderate the um, volatility and maybe moderate the, the the sleep at night thing you know uh, and if that's you then great knock yourselves out uh, but i'm not i wouldn't do it i won't be doing it because over the long term i fully expect shares will continue to outperform and i'd be literally costing myself money the, the longer i was in bonds the more money i had in bonds over the long term the more money i'm costing myself and that i'm just not in that for that for that reason right even though we just talked about about returns and average returns and maximizing returns and everything else uh which about the average investor and having money in etfs that ben graham said um you know it, Again, do it, do it if you need to. Do it if you need the, the safety or the comfort or the, um, the, the, the volatility dampening, uh, but not for me, no. Can I just say, like, um, I, brought, I brought up... Um, so one of the easy... Bonds buying directly is a bit more fiddly. And, and so what you'll typically do as, as an average investor is you'll buy a bond ETF. So the one on the ASX, one of the ones on the mm. ASX is bond, B-O-N-D is the ticker. And it's got a mixture of Australian fixed interest. So very, very low risk, et cetera, et cetera. Well, since the beginning of 2021, it's dropped 20%. So there's that. And had you bought it 10 years ago, you're still underwater today. Mm. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, you know what? It's actually reasonably volatile when you bring up the chart. It's sort of, uh, I, anyway, exhibit mm -hmm. A. And, and there, yeah. are, there are others that are out there. And frankly, you find this a lot in our industry where- there are just certain sacred cows that are there and God knows mm -hmm. why they're there or why they manage to persist <laughs> because say, yeah. in the face yeah. of all available evidence, it's just not great. You know, the, 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 um, the, the argument for, for doing a lot of these things. And I think the 60, 40 bond uh, share equity, sorry, equity bond portfolio idea is, is, is antiquated. I think it's dated. I, I personally don't do it. Whatever you mm -hmm. don't have in risk assets, just, just keep in, in cash. That's your rainy day fund. That's that's what, there when you need to draw it down. You'll pretty much get roughly the same interest rate anyway, mm -hmm. and you don't have all the volatility. So it's just it's just an uh, uns and then you've got the the the, the very real long term inflation risk, which I, I think is understated. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The the only, the only reason I would own them if I was going to is just for uh, the regular cash flow and whatever, whatever. You know, and look, really honestly, the bond market is bigger than the share market. I mean, for, for all of our, for Andrew, Andrew and I making these statements, there are many, many, many more people in the world, by definition, dollar wise, investing in bonds and equities. Mm. So, so there, there is a market for them, and people have found a use for them. And for all we know, those people could feel like they are more right than we are. Um, and I'm not going to tell them that they're not necessarily for their purposes if that's what they want to do. Um, and there's a whole lot of things, by the way, you know, you can buy distressed. Uh, bond assets, Oak Tree Capital is a great job of that sort of yes. stuff. Um, you know, there are there are plenty of there are plenty of reasons where and why you might make a case for bonds. Uh, I, you know, circumstantially, bond investors think they want to invest in bonds because they like what they like. 
They don't want volatility. They don't want risk. They want, you know, regular cash flows. They want, in some cases, more guaranteed cash flows. If you're investing in government bonds, for example, you can pretty much always, particularly reasonable governments, you know, Australia, US, you take those bond payments to the bank, quite literally. You know, will the company pay dividends? Well, the banks cancelled them last year. BHP's dividend fell this year. You know, if you've got superannuation or if you're running a super fund, you've got to pay out um, a, a, an income, you know, a pension income stream or you got to have money for redemptions or whatever else there are reasons why they can make sense for some investors um yeah makes no sense to me no mate that was a fun mailbag thank you everyone who sent their questions in if you want to i've already given the the social so i'll just add you can get in touch with us info info at fool.com.au with any questions you want to email us otherwise just whack it through on a direct message on the socials and we'll get to as many as we can will you come back next friday you know i will I know you will. Until then, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.